that's what football folk is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, and all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Sam Monson here, as always. Not Steve, though. Steve's driving his ass and the family in the minivan all the way down to Florida. So we have a crossover show. Dr. Eric Eager in the house, which means actual analytics, actual math, not whatever me and Steve do in terms of conveying the work done by others. Welcome in, Eric. Sam, it's great to be here. Uh, this has been a fun offseason so far. Um, you know, I did my own PFF forecast yesterday. First time we've we've had another host besides me or George. Okay. Uh, so I think the crossover. I'm I'm primed for a crossover today. Nice. You went on an actual coffee run. You went out of the building. You went to get real coffee. I I am powered by a Death Wish coffee. Okay. Which apparently is the world's strongest coffee. Our okay. our buddy Eric over at uh, Eric, right? I think that's his name. I'm gonna okay. get confused because you're Eric. But our guy Eric at Death Wish Death Wish Coffee sent us some because we were. We were lamenting the lack of a coffee sponsorship for the PFF NFL show. Yeah. And he was like, I, I got you. He sent us a whole bunch of coffee, and uh, it's strong. It's I, strong, and it's good. That's awesome. I'm a pretty big degenerate when it comes to, to, <laughs> to, to, uh, um, to coffee. I went to Tim Hortons today, the Canadian brand, yeah, you yeah. Know, on the way here. Where is that? So I live in Lebanon, which yeah, is like – You're out there. I, I'm out there. So like not when, quite Canada, though. Not quite Canada, but close. And, you know, there are a few places in the U.S. that will sell Tim Hortons. I like Tim Hortons. But then I got here, and uh, our colleague, my friend uh, Dave Sofaro, was like, hey, let, let you, do you want some more coffee? And I was like, absolutely. So uh, I got another cup here from, you know, a local place uh, in town. So I'm ready to go. Because my parents used to live up near Buffalo, and that's close enough that mm-hmm. there's Tim Hortons around. That makes sense. Even, I mean, Lebanon's, I wouldn't have expected them to, to make it as far south as I mean, as that. we're closer to the Dayton airport there than we are to the Cincinnati, you know, Northern Kentucky International Airport. So Wow, you are um, right there. It, it is something, but we're in, we're in the office today. Beautiful digs here. Uh, much a more elaborate setup than we have at the forecast. We're starting to get a lot of trinkets, all right, between the helmets. This is my old uh, Dublin, West Dublin Rhinos getup. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, the coffee gear. Uh Bit of housekeeping before we get in the show. What do we got coming up? I still haven't done the TikTok dance, but the final piece of the costume, I guess, has arrived. I've been a bit, a little bit sick the last few days, and frankly, I just wasn't learning the TikTok dance whilst laid under with like tonsillitis or whatever the hell I'm dealing with here. Not COVID though. Clear, clear test. We're fine. Good, 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 good. good. Um, so that'll come maybe next week. Steve is going to miss this show and Monday's show. Austin Gale will be coming back on Monday's show. And then I'm out of here for this, uh, this road trip that I was talking to you about off air. And Steve's getting in a whole bunch of guests. So keep firing in emails. Keep firing in topics, suggestions, comments, questions, anything, anything that's on your mind. NFL podcast at PFF.com or the Twitter and the TikTok. You can see them there on the, uh, on the screen. 
Um, before we get into the show, though, we have to tell you all about the uh, the studio sponsor, Western and Southern there, the fancy plaque on the wall. Um, the PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. Luckily, you've got first pick in selecting the right money moves. Do you need life insurance? What about help planning for your financial goals? Don't pass on this round. Use your position to expand your financial education and learn more with information on life insurance, investing, and retirement planning at westernsouthern.com forward slash draft. westernsouthern.com forward slash draft. Um, all right, Eric. That was a very professional read, by the way. Thank I'll, you. I'll tell you a story. Yesterday, when we did our pod, I just breezed through the whole thing and <laughs> forgot to read any ads. And so you you come to like uh, really appreciate the the George Shahuris of the world when they when they you know when when you're in their place. And you're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. There are aspects of this thing that that me as a lowly analyst uh, don't really understand. Yeah, when Steve isn't here, it does. It throws the ad reads front and center, and you're like, yeah, I, I, I just get to switch off and let him read the ads. Yeah. And then he's not here, and I all of a sudden like I got to do Hot shots at the ads, you know, the, yeah. the landscape. Of course, yeah, I mean, you know. can chime in or whatever, but generally speaking, you can just sort of switch off and let him deal do, with it. Do you guys have the uh, the, the lawn care company? I mean, we, we yeah, went yeah. from one uh, lawn Sunday. care. Sunday. Mm-hmm. We went from one lawn care company to two. To two. We got emails saying that it took them three quarters of the way through the Sunday read before they realized it wasn't a Manscaped read. And when, you, when you've heard that and you listen to it again, you're like, yeah, this is actually a minefield of double entendres. You could get, you get all the way. Yeah. I mean, Manscaped could just adopt the, the copy for the Sunday read and be, be most of the way there to a, a full read themselves. Do you think, do you think that they, uh, when they were creating this, ball shaver let's just be honest like do, do you think they ever real did they ever did for lack of a better term did they did they think that that thing the the, the bit had legs because honestly it, it's the advertising yeah it's not like the, the, i mean that i tool think is not i think very early on in the manscaped um world of you know corporate identity they must have determined that the way this thing gets success is you know turning it into kind of a joke yeah, not a, like not like a laugh at them. How what a farce that is, but like making the whole thing fun. Because well, like you sense. can't otherwise you can't you know you're not going to get away with like ser- like putting a serious face on that and be like hey you actually have to turn the thing into fun. So making the reads, making the whole advertising, making the branding generally a fun thing is the only way you're going to sell that to people. I think. Yeah, I, sounds- I've done well. I agree. I think when you look at the autopsy of all the other ball shavers, they, that was where they missed. There's just there is the, the the road to good personal hygiene is littered with failed ball shavers that aren't manscaped. I mean, yeah. that's the bottom without line. Without the without the marketing creativity. Yeah. Um, so I I messaged you yesterday and I was like, okay, doctor, we've got some uh, we've got some emails in, we've got some topics that we can hit. But what have you been working on? Because you. You're the, like the R&D department. You are the skunk works. You're the M division of BMW. The guy's locked in the building over there doing weird stuff that nobody else knows how to do and coming up with cool, cool things that eventually make it to the, the front-facing marketplace. So you, were, you had a thing. You, you had something you've been working on. You were going to hit me with it. Yeah, so I agree. I, I think that what's really fun about the jobs we all have is like, you know, at its, at its core, like we're trying to understand football better. Right. So um, we my group, uh, we have access to uh, X, Y tracking data uh, through some context we have and, and so forth. And one of the things we're trying to understand is 
and I think you and Steve, you and Steve have been around longer than anybody. You know the grading system better than than I do, and, and better than I think anybody in the world. You know, there are parts of our data where I think we do an absolutely bang up job. I think you know pass rushers. You know, when when Jermaine Johnson isn't a productive college pass rusher, and you know we've seen his, history say that like. To be a great NFL pass rusher, you, you, you need elite athleticism and college production, with a few exceptions, Danell right. Hunter being one of them. And so when, when, when somebody like Jermaine Johnson or Trayvon Walker come in and don't have that kind of production, it, it's a red flag, right? Linebacker coverage, linebacker play, I think we're a lot less the, – the data is just a lot more noisy. Like mm-hmm. there are players like Deion Jones who weren't great college players but flashed traits – that ended up being pretty good uh, NFL players. There are, are linebackers, like I think of, you know, we were talking about the USFL upstairs, like Scooby Wright, yeah. who like sort of did everything right in college, uh, pun intended, and, and you know, ultimately just didn't have it. Didn't have, didn't have it to play yeah. in the league. And so... Great, like, great example of an early, like, lesson for, you know, we start PFF college yeah. grading. We have those first years, the first couple of years where... We didn't know what any of it meant, right? It's yeah. like, well, this guy's an amazing college player. Grades are off the chart. Does that mean he'll be a great NFL player? Who the hell knows? Let's start talking about him, right? So Scooby Wright was one of those guys. Grades amazing. Great at everything. Just wasn't a good NFL player. Obviously has a level. And apparently that level is like the USFL. Yeah, and by the way, like, there are a lot more wins than losses in that, in that story, sure. right? There, there's Grady Jarrett. There's Trey Flowers. There's uh, Tyler Lockett. There's... You know, back and I, I joined PFF in 2015, which was a year after you guys started college. And but I was a fan before, and I listened to you guys' shows. And like, there were a lot more players who you, you know, Shaq Mason. You, right. you, you guys were like, he's a good football player. I, I think it'll translate, but we don't have necessarily that second. Like, this is the first time anybody was collecting data on yeah. this, this, you know, uh, on NCAA in that sort of graininess. And and there were misses, but you know, Yannick Ngakwe was another one, right? Where he was just such a bad run defender in college that we thought, you know. Prohibitively so, right. been a good pass rusher in the NFL, and so now we sort of like equate those things properly, right? Um, and so, but linebacker is one of those positions where I, I sort of thought that you know this is a place where we could where we could do a little bit better. So um, a few of, uh, of of the folks in my group, so like you know Timo Risky, Ben Brown, a couple of interns we had, Zach Drafkin, who now works for the Eagles, uh, and Tay Seth, um, we went through and looked at sort of two traits by linebackers. One of them was how, how much you bite on play action and how, and this is the new one, you know, we published that, that part in the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in, uh, this, this spring. Um, and, the, and the next one was how good are you at chasing down the running back? So, you know, and you have to adjust for certain situations. So, for example, on third down and 10, if you are like uh, a dime linebacker, you're not going to be you're not going to bite out that many play action plays relative to a guy like Zach Cunningham was more of a first and second down player. Um, you know, and the same thing in the run game, you're not going to be, you're not going to flow as much on third and 10. So you have to do a lot of like mathy stuff on the play level to sort of take, you know, down a distance situation. And then I, Steve Palazzolo had a great idea, which is like how often do you run certain coverages, right? Or if you're a man coverage team, you're going to retreat less if you're a zone team you're going to retreat more you know what kind of uh inside zone outside zone there was somebody for ng uh with ngs that said outside zone teams do better on play action than other types of run scheme teams and so you adjust for all that and you come up with an expectation so on this play this linebacker position is expected to bite a yard 
towards the line of scrimmage on run plays. Okay, well, he bit two yards. So uh, above expected, it was one yard bitten above expected. On this run play, uh, the, the distance between him and the running back closed in by five yards in the first two seconds of the play. Well, on plays like that, it's actually supposed to be seven. So he's two yards worse than average, that kind of thing. And so what's really cool is these metrics, I would consider them trait-based. And, and they're, they're more stable year to year than, you know, stati- you know, measures that we've had previously. And, and I think the coolest thing about them is there is the trade-off that we all think exists, which is Z- the Zach Cunninghams of the world that bite voraciously on play action right. are also really good at hunting down the running back. And so the question is, is are there players who are, are sort of – are there players who are really good at not biting at play action but are also really instinctive against the run? And there are some of those players. And some of them make sense, like Dante Hightower, right? A guy who's been consistently, you know, great in this league. And there are other guys who our grading system hasn't liked but have gotten contracts in the league. And that's like Blake Martinez, right? Mm. Blake Martinez is weirdly a guy who doesn't bite that hard on play action but also is pretty good at stopping the run. So I think it's added to our understanding. I think it's made a little bit of – uh, it, it's and, and then we can turn it around, and, and one thing I'll talk about in a second is we can turn it around and ask, how do offenses influence this stuff? And are there players who are sort of special in that way? So we had a guy email in, actually, that you, you touched on a bit of his question there. Um, I, I hadn't planned on bringing this email up, and now that I have, I've realized that his name is, is going to be a tricky one, right? Okay. So it's from Victor. <laughs> Victor's surname, I think, is... Sunners Yo, I guess. Maybe Sunners Yo, depending on what language that is. Um, anyway, he was basically talking about that idea of expectation, right, that you brought up there. And essentially was saying, you know, for a layman, it's difficult to understand um, when people are talking about completion percentage over, expect- over expectation, et cetera. Uh, what goes into it? I guess it, it, it's going to be a case of it depends what it is you're looking at, right? Like you just talked about. For those linebackers and flow of the football, you need to adjust for down and distance. You need to adjust for coverages, all those kinds of things. And this is probably the case for completion percentage over expectation, but it's going to be a slightly different set of um, things that you're adjusting. But essentially, it's those things that you're trying to normalize so that the data is. Yeah, and for completion percentage over expected, like, by the way, i you know big fan of Ben Baldwin, big fan of, of you know the next-gen stat people. Um, I really think that their analysis is great. And, and if you put together PFF grade, PFF war, CPOE, and uh, EPA, like that's the e- – if you combine those in right. one metric, that's the best way to predict quarterback play from one year to the next. CPOE has, you know, just like anything, including PFF grade, has – you know it has you know it has its areas where it can be exploited let's say if you right. just want to use one metric to to rank players you know think about like Patrick Mahomes you know Patrick Mahomes doesn't have that high of a CPOE because he sort of engineers passes that are that by the time the ball's thrown the the accuracy is the trivial part right that was like, always that was always the Tom Brady thing right yeah. for years it was like Right, uh, very early on in PFF's time, Tom Brady wasn't grading that well, but he was winning everything. Right, yeah. he was the Patriots were that dominant force, and I used to spend half my life being thrown to the wolves on New England radio, trying to justify why Tom Brady wasn't yeah. the best graded quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. And you were like, "Well, we're not giving him credit for throwing a five-yard drag to to Wes Welker 
that's open that Wes Welker is then taking another five, ten yards, yeah. right? And they're like, well, it's the work he does before that to generate that pass. Right. And you're like, yeah, I mean, th- there is something to that, but it's not – like there's only so much we can give him credit for that. Yeah. But that's an example, right? Like you do that time after time after time after time, you will have more success. You'll be a better quarterback than the guy that doesn't. And it's not quite showing up in the grading the way you needed to. Well, it was the sort of story about that that Kansas City uh, Green Bay Monday night game where Rodgers threw the five touchdowns and we gave right. him basically a zero grade. Yeah. And you go back and look and you're like, oh, none of these throws are all that impressive. He zero also, in the old system, which is average, which is like a 60-something now. And he had a fumble in the pocket and he threw an interception on a play that got reversed and stuff. So there was a ton of context. But also like – being able to check into the bubble screen to Randall Cobb, you know, yeah. is part of being a quarterback. And and it's sort of – and on the other side of the stick, like we have, you know, Vi- you know, both of us grew up Vikings fans. You know, you have Kirk Cousins, right, where there's a, the, sort of a good hearts law to it as well, where he sort of knows what's going to get him his next contract. Right. And he's, you know, checking down and he's doing things that aren't going to get dinged by our system because they're not bad things in a vacuum, but they don't add up to winning football. And it's 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 sort of the same thing too with CPOE. It's like he does really well in CPOE because he's a good passer, but he doesn't he and he doesn't engineer easy throws for himself. Right. So he's engineering hard throws that and he hits on a few of them. So you get a few of these plays that are super improbable that he completes, and then that you know puts his metric in, in a in a positive light. Not to say he's a bad quarterback. I'm just saying you know that those are kind of like the the crevices of the data where I think you need to have a very complete look. Yeah, like any any one number. There's always some kind of exploit, right. exploit, no, like nook or cranny or crease to it that you can warp it in a slight manner. Um, so anyway, hopefully that goes some way towards answering your question, Victor. Apologies if I butchered your surname. Anyway, linebackers. <laughs> yeah. So so I think the coolest part about this is is like finding out players. You know, to your point, like PFF grades is this great thing, right? But you look at you know guys that we have not graded all that well. It's like Devin White, right? You look at Devin White, I, I sort of think about him as kind of the I, the Chris Carter fall guy of that defense, right? Like you sort of – everything goes right on that defense. They rush the passer really well. They cover, and the, the, the offense funnels the ball to Devin White. And then Devin White like misses his tackle or something like that. But it's still like a six-yard gain on third and ten. We might ding him a little bit for a grade. Um, and, and so overall, like that whole defense grades well, except for Devin White, it's like – but, yeah, the sum of the parts is still a pretty good defense, right? And so, okay, how can we and, – and there might be a case where he's just not necessarily as good as public perception. But in this data, he's actually quite good at, like, he doesn't bite on play action. He's pretty good at, at flowing to the run. Both him and Levante David are actually, like, making that sacrifice a little bit, which is uh, – and David actually less so. David is the flower on that defense. But, like, both of the guys sort of, like, stay back on play action better and, you know, again – that's probably because they built their defense around Vita Vea and stuff like that. Guys that can handle the uh, the run game themselves and the linebackers sort of can be passed first and stuff. But it just it, it highlights so many cool things about football. And, and and I'll bring it back to the offensive side of the ball, which is if you can look at linebacker movement, you can also look at players that cause differentials in linebacker movement. So for the longest time, you know, when, when Lamar Jackson won – NFL MVP, he was kind of more like fifth in our war metric because rushing isn't as efficient as passing. But and there haven't been quarterback rushers who have really done what Lamar has done. You know, Cam Newton was a little different, um, right? And so we we didn't have the historical precedent in our data to really value Lamar Jackson as highly as maybe he was he was. And so I look at 
when you look at, you know, Joe Flacco on that offense and you look at Lamar Jackson, once he was inserted in that offense, linebackers moved basically a half, like a half a yard less once <laughs> Lamar Jackson got into the offense. So now you can see plainly, like, okay, this is the effect he's had. Yeah. This is the gravity he's having he's on the team. literally paralyzing defenders yeah. for a period. Right, and, and so, like, you know, our manual graders, like, of course we're not going to – we intuitively understand this, but – I wouldn't want somebody who's in our system to go in and be like, okay, how much is the linebacker moving and stuff? Right. Like, you know, we're more, much more of a, did they bite? Okay, good, you know, minus one or something like that. Or, you know, did, did they flow well? Okay, plus 0.5. But, like, it's these, it's these sort of little edges that, like, the truly transcendent players, you look at Derrick Henry. Like, Derrick Henry, you know, people do bite on Derrick Henry's play action. Like, it's, it's the one, and you can see it. It's like maybe a, like a half a yard more than you know, an average running back. Okay, well, that space is maybe why Ryan Tannehill yeah. has had a rebirth in his career versus, uh, you know, when he was in Miami where he was just simply an okay quarterback. Being able to quantify that I think is really cool. The other area just off the top of my head that it, it seems like it would have a, a really useful way of um, impacting is when you're evaluating linebackers. And so a lot of the time you, lo- you look at these guys in college and you're sort of saying, well, he doesn't win – he struggles when he has to take on blocks, right? Mm-hmm. It's like he all of his wins are getting around blockers rather than going through them or playing off the block, and that just doesn't translate at the next level and blah, blah, blah. And I think ultimately it might be one of those things where it, it doesn't necessarily matter how you get there as long as you're getting there regularly, right? Yeah. Like if you can still get – so there are definitely players where – you, they win by getting around blocks, and then they get to the next level, and they just can't do that anymore, and that's a problem. Um, but I bet there's also a ton of players that in today's NFL, you simply don't need to play the game the way you used to. You don't need to be Bart Scott, right, in order to play linebacker anymore. You yeah. don't need to, like, launch yourself face first at a guard and then shed and make the play. You can run the hell around a block a lot of the times, it's particularly if you're a high-level athlete, which is what everybody's chasing at the linebacker position. So I wonder if that would, you know, if that's – so did you run that for college players? Well, so we don't have college tracking okay, data. So yeah. this, is, this is the thing I'm, you know so – like uh, I wonder how that would show up for a guy like N'Kobe Dean, you right. know, who's getting dinged because, well, what if N'Kobe Dean gets to the next level and now he doesn't have uh, the Georgia defense all around yeah. him and it's different? I, I bet he would still – yeah, show really well in that. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's I think like that's what we're trying to get at. I mean, obviously, I, I think there is going to be a time when when everybody, um, you know, you already had stats bomb show that they've been able to collect some college tracking data. I, I think the future is is pretty bright there, and to be able to, you know, to pin down and and one of the other parts that was in this paper, and this was one of the reasons why. I was gassing up Marquez Valdez Scanling a lot is just like looking at wide receivers on deep patterns, trying to re-engineer what their 40 yard dashes, right? right? So, you know, guys like Antonio Brown, Cooper Cup were not great runners at combines, but run faster than that indicates. Now, Cooper Cup's not a 4-3 guy on the field. He's a 4-5 guy, but that's a lot better than the 4-6-2 he ran yeah, yeah. coming out of Eastern Washington. And What do you, you put that difference down to? I... Well, I think it's just body control. Like, like because I've know. always speculated that I, I and I suspect this is more the smaller the player, the bigger a deal this is. But I think there are players that carry pads and a helmet better than others. You know, like it's not an insubstantial volume of crap to put on your body and then say go out and run as fast as you humanly can. Right, a, a set of pads and a helmet and the ancillary crap that you have to wear in terms of like you know thigh pads and knee yeah. pads now. 
Like it's it's stuff, right? And the the smaller a person you are, the bigger and all and more awkward that is. And I think there are players that just handle that better. There are players yeah. for whom a set of pads and a helmet is nothing, and they just run like they're right there in you know mm-hmm. in Under Armour spandex. And there are guys where you put all that stuff on them, and all of a sudden it like it's awkward. It jang- it messes with their their flow or their biomechanical rhythm, and they're just not as fast as they are when they're not wearing that stuff. Yeah, I think th- this is the great part about math is like sort of somebody like me will come in and I have intuition. I mean, I played in college, I you know, but I don't have the football knowledge that you have or or uh, a scout has. So, you know, what I can do is pose questions to people who understand the game a little bit better than I do. You know, where you I think it's somewhat of the – so what we did is take the PFF grades. And this is why, you know, the, the, the thing of the paper, and you can go to – if you Google Sloan Sports Analytics Conference and you're a psycho and you want to read the math, <laughs> it, it's, it's on the internet. It, it's published there. Go ahead and read it. But the, the, my, my thesis was it's also just about being able to control your speed, yeah. right? So the, the Corey Coleman's of the world – the, and the John Rosses. So John Ross ran a four two something in the combine. His on field speed is like four 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 five, right? Which isn't slow, but when you combine that with not being able to do anything else, right. you're just a wide receiver. You're literally taking away the one trick, the one trick right. he has. It was like when the Vikings played the Saints in 04, and he uh, Moss hurt his hamstring, and, and Joe Theismann <laughs> on, on, on camera said, look, without his speed, Moss is just a tall receiver. Uh, <laughs> um, that's a uh, throwback there. Uh, but, you know, so for me, I think it's, it's about being able to control yourself. We have the PFF grade. So my thing is, the, the model is, can you run fast? So you look at minimum speed, not minimum speed, median speed, uh, max speed, and m- mean speed. So there are three different readings. Can you maintain your speed? Can you hit a top speed that's pretty high? And then some combination of that, which is the average. And then it's PFF grade, which is, did you track the ball well enough as a player to catch it, Right. And so, you know, everybody on that top list is a good football player. It's, you know, it's Cooper Cup, it's Devontae Adam. And then in the top 15, there was the 2020 season for Marquez Valdez-Scantling. And people will say, oh, he didn't have a great PFF grade. You go look back, the guy was a very productive deep threat that year. And when you go back and look in the film, and again, for people like me, it's super dangerous to go back and look at the film because I, I, I might not know what I'm looking at or whatever. But he tracked the ball well. He made big plays. And so I'm like, is he being undervalued? And I think when you when you take these, you know, are and, and and face let's face it, PFF whether people like it or not is the table stakes for understanding football. Right. Every single time a lineman is signed, every time a defensive end is signed, every time a receiver is signed, the PFF grade is what people report. So to understand more about the game, even us, and that's our company, we have to sort of pivot from that initial place to a different place to try to find value on players. And I think that through building new metrics, you can kind of do that. I think the other thing at play with the 40 uh, that we've brought up a lot before is that so much of like the time 40 time is your start. Right? Yeah. If you don't know how to start or you just don't start well, your 40 time changes not just like a tiny bit. It changes dramatically. So a lot of these guys, like a John Ross, right? So much of John Ross's 40 time might just be the dude – is an incredible starter as a sprinter. And if you take that away, which you do when you put him on an NFL field because you're not starting in a sprinter stance, nobody's lighting up like 1980 Jerry Rice anymore, you know, with the yeah. three-point stance off the line in the Super Bowl. That doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. These guys are out there in two-point stances, and you got to release off the line before you can get anywhere. So that changes entirely what your speed, what your sprint is. Isn't it just resources, like. too? Like, I – 
and I, I have to look at this actually, but like there's a couple things. A, we've already we've shown that there's tons of discrepancies in combine and pro day data. There's an right. article on pff.com, just Google that, and you can look and see like it, it's totally different. But also, it, it, there's no mistake that like you, know, you have Antonio Brown who played in the MAC. Right, his forty times a lot worse than how he played on the field. You have an FCS player in Cooper Cup. You have Jerry Rice, who was, you know, that at that time it would be an FCS player at Mississippi Valley State. Like, there's, it's to your point. It's like if, if I'm playing for Alabama, like I can just hire a speed coach who right. tells me how to start, yeah. and I can get over that. That was kind of the the perplexing thing about Kyle Hamilton, which is like he played for a pretty big program. He was the best player right. on the team, and that was his issue. That, I think that plays a factor. Definitely. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it does. And that, I think that's why we're going to see, or we have been seeing, these sort of record-setting combine or pro day performances the last couple of years. Like, this is a thing now. People are so good at getting prepared and trained for this, particularly if they're like, you know, like last year, basically taking a year off and doing mm-hmm. nothing but training for it. They should be setting absurd record-breaking numbers. Like, this is what they're doing for an extended period of months before they show up and do this testing. That should absolutely be way better than a dude that, like, 10 years ago, you know, spent, like, a week learning how to do this and then rocked up, and that was basically what he tried to do. Um, it should absolutely be a, a different level set that we're looking and I, at. And I'm always worried about, like, how, how I view this. Because in, in theory, like, in theory, you should be doing all these things to be for your job interview right. <laughs> kind of thing. But, you know, that that's... I, I don't think that that's a reality, you know, and, you know, being a former academic and stuff, you, you always, you know, you, when you, I had, I ran a grant program where you get applicants and you could see like this person's been coached, this person hasn't been coached. Right. Uh, you know, I think that you get that in all walks of life. Yeah, um, absolutely. I want to get into some kind of uh, retrospective look at the draft and, and some sort of ways that analytics review some of this stuff. But first, this podcast is sponsored by Sunday. So this is a Sunday read. Not a manscape read. Mm-hmm. Just bear that in mind. Different lawn. Does your lawn have weeds? Your grass lawn, the lawn for your house. Bear patches or pet spots. Um, Sunday can help you solve all these problems and more the easy way. They've got everything you need from fertilizer to seeds to weed control, and it's all delivered right to your door. Sunday can help you grow a beautiful lawn without the guesswork or the nasty chemicals. Their custom plans include fertilizer and everything you need to easily care for your lawn. You can feel good with kids and pets running around. Just attach the ready-to-use pouch to a garden hose and spray. It takes less than 15 minutes. Even Steve can manage it. And Sunday is offering our listeners 20% off. Full-season plans start at just $129, and you can get 20% off at checkout when you visit GetSunday.com slash NFLPod. That's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash NFLPod. Have you, uh, you've, got, you've presumably got quite some lawn up in Lebanon. Yeah. Otherwise, actually, what the hell's the point in being in Lebanon? <laughs> actually, George and I were talking about this on the podcast. Uh, so we rent. So like we've never bought when we since we sold and moved here. Um, and there's a uh, I I don't this is this is I don't think this is politically correct, but I believe it's called this the Wives of Lebanon Facebook group. Wow. And there and there was a person on there who was complaining about renters who don't take care of their yards <laughs> and make and make the community look like crap is it you and and stephanie my wife told me she's like i don't think it's me they pointed out <laughs> but like i honest to god i have not cut grass since i moved there i have not and by the way when i lived in wisconsin this this was not true 
I have not shoveled snow since I moved here. Really? Yeah. Like I just you just the snow is never that fierce where Oh, you, it's been it's been bad enough that I needed to. Okay, yeah. cuz I I have and and I used to cut grass at the old house that we used to rent, but I I don't, you know, I mean, I think we got a service. Uh, I think we actually I mean, we got Sunday. Uh you know, so I don't have to do that. <laughs> It's uh, it's like a legit peer pressure thing, though. Like, we live in a small cul-de-sac. There's, like, what, 10 houses or whatever? Yeah. And most of them are, like, pretty hardcore manicured, you know, and look perfect. Right. You're like, I actually, I can't. I can't just let this thing look like a like a meadow or whatever. I need to. And right now it's growing like crazy. So I got to be out, like, every week mowing the front. Now, look, the back, people can't see it, so I don't care as much. Mm-hmm. But the front. I, I was Doesn't like, stop Manscaped from making a lot of money. It's true. It's true. Um, but it is crazy how much, like, it's like a thing. You can't let your yard go to rack no. and ruin while everybody around you is looking perfect. When I lived in Wisconsin, we there were no there was no one under the age of, like, 40 that lived in our cul-de-sac. And our lawn was, like, an acre and a half. So I would go, like, once every 10 days. And, and that was actually a workout. But it was it was also just like the most demoralizing thing ever because it just grew, it, obviously just keeps growing back and you're just like when it, you know this is never going to get any better yeah. you know my uh, my dad when they moved to they moved to upstate New York to Rochester and they bought this giant house on like it was five acres or something of just lawn right so he was like oh the American dream I'm going to buy a sit on lawnmower and like mow my own lawn right. But you don't understand that those things travel at like three miles an hour. Yeah. So even at like on a sit on, he's, he's mowing it for like two hours, you know, just to yeah. get across five acres of grass. Also, you need it to be flat. Like, so that was okay, but it was literally the time involved. He was like, he did it once and was like, I'm never doing that again. Like, I, I'm not, wait, I'm not spending multiple hours on a lawnmower to get this thing like done. So at one point, they, they let like, they, fenced off or cut like just cut a line across this thing yeah. and let like half of it go out to pasture yeah i you just stop mowing it and see yeah. what happens when i was in ecology like i when i was in ecology the best part was the people who got super like uppity about oh wait you you cut your grass oh that's too bad i garden my <laughs> like th- these people who you know you're wasting good ecology on having a yard like yeah. the 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 distribution of takes about right. about uh, the whole ecosystem care, you're destroying it, there it, it is pretty funny to me. Um, so I'm curious about the draft stuff. We had a couple of emails that were interesting on this topic. Actually, by the way, I need to give credit to somebody that emailed us before the draft. I don't think we ever got around to this email. Uh, a guy called Joe Davis who wrote in basically with the Rosetta Stone of the Saints draft, right? How they draft, what they value, what they do, predicting how they would react to certain players and actually nailed their first two uh, first their two first round picks it was like they will value Chris Olave over guys like you know Traylon Burks or whoever else and they'll they'll value a Trevor Penning over people like Charles Cross or whatever other available tackle now the way the draft unfolded you can kind of say all right that that they were kind of left with those two players anyway but credit to that guy I think he did nail that um, from an email the next one um, we got a guy emailing in uh, let me reel this out. This one's from Switzerland. We've got quite the worldwide right, like um, the the listenership. My God, I, the sickness has like robbed my brain of the capacity to like think. I can't form words 
which is a problem when you're talking on a podcast. Cosmopolitan, I think, was the word I was actually trying to generate there. Anyway, hi, guys. Love your pod. In fact, I think I'm getting to the point where I prefer to think about team building than to watch the actual games. Here are some thoughts on draft pick trade value discussion. Uh, I want to suggest a different kind of view to the trade up by the Lions who acquired the number 12 overall pick for the Vikings. Um, we compared the value of the picks the Lions gave up to the value of the picks they got, but he thinks we should factor in the player they traded up for, Jamison Williams. Let's say the Lions had Jamison Williams as a ninth-best player on their big board, just like PFF. Um, in my opinion, that means that Jamison Williams is worth the ninth overall pick in the draft. So when you're, when you're equating that to the Jimmy Johnson trade value or whatever, that's 1,350 points. The Lions pick him a 12, but that shouldn't be the pick you're factoring in because what they acquired is Jamison Williams, not a theoretical 12th overall pick. Um, if you think that Jamison Williams is worth the, the pick number nine, you compare the value to the ninth pick uh, to whatever they gave up, not to the 12th pick. Well, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Best regards in Switzerland, Dominic. Um, I think that's kind of intriguing because from what I understand, the way um, the stuff that you do or the PFF trade value charts, they can compare historical war expected from a given draft spot, yep. right? Um but there probably is something to the idea that if particularly the consensus, like if your opinion of a player and the consensus board, if that's telling you this guy is worth X spots ahead of the pick you're actually he's actually available at, that should factor in, right? I think so. So there's a, a great question. I, I, the, there's a few lines of research that I think would combat this, but also support what he's saying in a in a sliver of situations. So when we first started doing this 2018 draft, it was the Colts and it was the Jets trading up for Darnold. And we were using uh, pro football references, uh, a, a approximate value, which does a good job of, doesn't do the greatest job of positional value. Like when, when Adrian Peterson won the MVP, like he had the most approximate value in the league, which I think we all know that even when a running back wins the MVP, he's not truly the most valuable player in the league. And so when we did that, the Colts became an underwhelming favorite in that trade. And they ended up winning the trade, but overwhelmingly so. Then there was an article that came out of our blog post by Michael Lopez, who runs data and analytics for the NFL, basically saying you have to factor in superstars. And I think that that's what this is getting at, which is to say there's a fat tail associated with the 12th pick that is not necessarily inherent in the 32nd pick. And... The problem I have with this particular example is almost entirely that fat tail is associated with quarterbacks. So, you know, when Timo Risky rebuilt our model, he allowed for adding in the quarterback who can be about four times more valuable than the other, you know. Right. When they bust, they're terrible. But when they hit, or even if they moderately hit like Mac Jones or somebody like that, that position just offers so much surplus value. The trading up for a quarterback is usually fine. Uh, even the Darnold trade was fine. The Mahomes trade, the Watson trade, all those trades are fine on average because if the guy if the guy performs at at a normal level, there's so much surplus value inherent in that draft pick. the The hard part is like future research has then is suggested, and this is by Timo, who I published it on our website last year, which is to say there's really no such thing as a steal. In in essence, when a team like the Raiders goes up and takes Cleveland Farrell at four, or Alex Leatherwood at 18 or 19, I can't remember the exact pick, essentially what they're doing is sports betting, right? They are, they are laying a $1.10 to win a dollar. Right. 
and and everybody else in front behind them is being essentially the sports book because you get in, you get one player more of value dropping back to you, dropping back to you, dropping back to you. The problem is that the the, the statistics have shown that that re, that's those steals. So think Derwin James falling to seventeen. Think of um, you know Jameson Williams falling to twelve. Think of Nicobe Dean falling to the third round. Generally speaking those players don't end up overperforming the draft position. Okay. So so essentially the idea is reaches are real. So if you reach on a player, chances are he's going to underperform where you drafted him. But steals don't really exist. Steals, and, so when we talk about player sliding, um, what's the like what's the source piece of what's the source level set that we're working from, right? So Derwin James was expected to go higher. Oops. I, I jinxed him. We can't call him. We can't call him by his name, or he'll get injured. So on this, oh, show, I, I was, okay. I don't know show, the rules, but he's the player. The player. Yeah, it's like in Madden, LAC number thirty-three. Right. Exactly. Or now he's three. Now I think. Yeah. yeah. Right. So we we can't anyway. That guy, the player who we just jinxed and will therefore miss next year, um, he was expected to go high. Ends up falling to seventeen. What is the like? What's the when he was expected to go high, what are we using to get that piece of information? The consensus. Okay, paperwork. so we're using so even play, so because that's the key to this question, right? Is that in theory? Because I've advocated for a while, right? That <laughs> essentially, the NFL NFL teams are bad individually at saying yes. we like this player, we're going to go get this player. He will be better than you think he is. We win, right? So actually, a lot of what scouting departments do is a waste of time. Because you'd be as well using the wisdom of the crowds and just taking the, the consensus board, converting your scouting department to just being a vetting agency, right? And all they do is they go and find out who has, like, who's the worst attitude in the world. You talk to the dude for five minutes. I sent Steve a clip, right? So I was famously immediately out on Jared Goff the second I found out he didn't know where the sun rose from. Like, I don't care. I just refuse to believe that you can be an NFL quarterback at a high level if you reach that level in life and do not know where the sun rises. I can't. I'm not connecting that. I'm, I'm, I'm calling it a win. Well, what so about our, the two cell phone guy that we heard about? Exactly. About a, two cell phone guy. Immediately. As soon as he walks in the room, I'm out. Right. And I sent Steve a clip yesterday of Blake Bortles, who was <laughs> I don't know what the hell it was, but it was some like little composite of him answering some interview thing. Some woman goes, oh, so what do you usually do first thing in the morning? And he was like, take a piss. All right. And then they were like, what would you be doing if you hadn't been an NFL quarterback? He's like, I don't know, probably ripping cigs. And like, okay, what, the, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, your career is becoming a lot more clear to me. So that's what your scouting department does, right? They just talk to a dude. They write, they scratch off guys who are immediately, obviously not going to work. Um, people that, you know, the medical Red flags, those, all they're doing is taking names off your board, but your board is the consensus board, and you're not spending however much you spend on a scouting department replicating the job that is not provably any better than just the wisdom of the crowd. I think, to be fair, that's a lot of what a, a regional scout's job is. You know, I think the, when you talk to people in the league, you, you know, we have former people who used to work for us that are now scouts, and you meet them up at the combine, and you're like, hey, you know, what's your job? And the, a lot of it is background info. A lot of it is that kind of thing because and you know i think arif Hassan was the first one to do the consensus board i think he does a great job he also gets information they're not necessarily public boards but he gets information from people maybe not in the league but in in he has more boards than are just the public consensus 
So what I'm saying is not necessarily true about his particular consensus board, but I think the difference between the public consensus boards and what actually happens is all the stuff you just talked about. Right. You know, every single time I talk to somebody in the league and I'm like, hey, why didn't so-and-so work out? It's like, he eats honey nut Cheerios in the morning. You know, or why why didn't this work out? He's a doofus. Like, you know, what would you trade for this player? He's like, I wouldn't touch this player. We had a fourth-round grade on him. He's an idiot. And it's like, okay, so now – But I agree with you. And this is every single market acts this way, though. Every single sports better, right, has, you know, like we talk about Chiefs Chargers week two. You know, some guy likes Chiefs minus four. Some guy likes the Chargers minus one. And you take the average of all those opinions, and that's where you get Chiefs minus three. So is the reason that guys sliding in the draft generally are not steals because of that stuff, right? Because the reason they're sliding is the stuff that the public doesn't know about, and therefore the NFL simply values them lower than everybody else yeah. because of these things. But it, it doesn't even need – we don't even need an explanation for it. I think it's just really market-based. It's to say like, if, if Nicobe Dean falls to the third round, that means 32 teams felt one way about a player, which has so much more information than one team felt right. – that Cleland Farrell was worth the fourth pick in the draft. I, I think it's more of a market-based thing where it's – and I don't – the wisdom of the crowds is, is a little bit of a misused term. The wisdom of the crowds requires a, a, a large yeah, – so yeah. a larger than 30 set of independent opinions. And so I think the NFL operates more independently than some of the group think in the media and so on and so forth. But I still don't know – I, th- that's why there's still an edge. That's why the market isn't super efficient, isn't completely efficient. But it's a lot more efficient than you know. You know, we we had the tis- you know, the tussles with Jets fans. We're like, oh, Jermaine Johnson's the tenth best player in the draft. And it's like, okay, but he went 26. He's right. the 26th best player in the draft, and you took and yeah. you paid more than the 26. Not according to most teams, he's not. It, it, that's what I'm saying. So it took 25 teams, and uh, some teams had to pick twice. So it's less than that. But a, a big fraction of teams deemed him not worthy of that pick and so that that information matters there's also the whole thing and and again going back to the draft like we have to be careful about who is saying what jermaine johnson's position on the consensus board was somewhere around pick 10 the team that picked 10th was the jets right who everybody thought they were going to link him to there the other team that was the seahawks there were two teams out of 32 that were rumored to like him and, you know, as much as the Daniel Jeremiah's of the world and everybody, like, want to stay independent, I mean, they're getting their information about oh, yeah, who, huge. who is who from these teams. So, you know, there's a little PR spin. And there yeah. was actually a few people within the league who messaged me and said, Jermaine Johnson's not the 10th best player in the draft. The Jets gassed him up, and then they get him at 26. It's a PR thing, right? I, it, all those things make this – you know, all these things drive me to the point of if, if J- Jamison Williams is being picked 12th, he's the 12th best player in the draft. I mean, look, the, the Trayvon Walker thing is a perfect example, right? Like, I don't know how many people ended up with him as the number one player on their big board, but literally zero people would have done had it not been for the fact that the Jags were obviously – the closer we got to the draft, the more apparent it became – that he was going to be the number one overall pick. And, and certainly for a while, it was apparent that he was in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So if he appeared number one on a big board on any of these consensus you know, boards that went in there, it was only because the, ja- like the, because of the reports that the Jags were going to do that. Nobody had that guy as the number one player available in this draft based off independently looking through everybody's tape and saying that's the best player here. Nobody. Yeah. And, and so Trent I think Balke. It- I think the later in the draft you get, the more the more what I'm talking about is a robust. And there's also bigger error bars. 
like being picked 60th when you were the fifth. You, that's that's nowhere near as big of a deal as being picked right. 11th when you're first on everybody's the, board. The only thing that, that's sort of intriguing me about this, I think definitely if the suggestion was that just because the Lions rank him, you know, ninth or fifth or whatever it is, you know, if, if the Lions had him as the fifth best player on their board and he's available at 12, they should go, oh, that's that's massive value. That's the number we should be using. Make the trade. But if they're using some kind of composite of their opinion and the consensus board and they both say the same thing, it's like now we actually start to have quite a lot of opinions here. Now there's also almost a corresponding number of opinions in the rest of the league passing on this guy X number of times. And there's also the betting markets, which I know, you know, people, the betting markets for a, uh, for a NFL draft are not as sharp as a side and total in the NFL, but they do a pretty good job. And, you know, I, I know specifically that's part of what goes into teams processes for the, you know, for trying to see expectations, right. They, right. you know, and, and that's where you know they're they're not caught off guard nearly as much because you know Jordan Davis you know his number moved from thirteen and a half to fourteen and a half to fifteen and a half back down to thirteen and a half and he's picked thirteenth. Funny, like the people who have real skin in the game on some of these things are not getting it wrong. Which is, by the way, why we talk about moves like the Raiders, right, where they keep reaching every yeah. single year. The reason that's as bad as it is because teams are not that in the dark about where these guys should be going because of things like the betting market. You should have a pretty good idea of where you can get that guy, and it's a hell of a lot lower than where you've been getting him every year. Right. Like, if you bet every single, let's say, Jets, if you bet on the Jets in every single game of the season, chances are you're going to lose the VIG. You might even lose more because there's a really small chance that the entire market is going to get them wrong systematically for an entire, right? You know, if you're the Raiders and you consistently pick off the consensus board, then there's a pretty small chance you're going to be, you you could be right on one of them, right? right? But chances are you're going to be right on all of them is pretty low, right? And and so, and it's so funny because when we give out, we we talk about teams that had, quote, good drafts or bad drafts. The teams that, that we say had good drafts, you know, the Jets are a little bit different. I think it's the Jets pick good players and that, you know, they, they might have paid too much for Brees Hall and, and Jermaine Johnson, but their top two picks are fine. But, like, we look at the teams that are having great drafts. All the Chiefs really did, for the most part, after the McDuffie pick is let the draft come to them. Yeah. I mean, they traded back in round two, let the Patriots take Tyquan Thornton, let uh, the, uh, George Pickens go to the Steelers, and then they just took the next best wide receiver. So the the G- Ravens are the same thing. Yeah. Should we now, based off what we've just been talking about, should we completely re- reevaluate the Chiefs draft and be like, no, this is actually just, this is just a fine draft. It's not great because the difference between the value that we're assigning to it of the consensus versus the where they got these guys is irrelevant historically. I, I Well, okay. I would agree with that, but then everybody's getting a C or worse. Right. It is yeah, a great yeah. because the, – because and we have shown, you know – So we're actually – we're back – we're reinforcing the people that are like, oh, anybody throwing a draft grade after the draft is an idiot. Can't tell anything until three years' time. This is dumb. Yeah. I'm not reading it. Actually, guess, it turns out that guy's dead on, and we should listen to him more. Yeah. The, the thing about the draft is, I mean, historically – teams have not and general managers have not been able to systematically beat it on a perfect basis right right? so um essentially if all you do is is pick the best player off the consensus board and and mix in positional value which is what the the chiefs did really well you're talking about defensive end Mm -hmm. corner wide out safety uh and then linebacker and then tackle and then a bunch of corners like 
you know, Packers as well, like Packers' first few picks got dragged because interior defensive lineman, linebacker. But then after that, it was really a bunch of really good picks. Um, Patriots move. Patriots go 100 picks up the consensus board for like a guard. Yeah. You know, that that's a double whammy. Uh, you trade up. Having traded away like a pro bowler for a fifth round pick. Right. Tra- uh, Jets trade up for a running back. And again, no one says Brees Hall sucks, but like that's a tough one, right? You t- trade a fifth round pick. A fifth round pick has about a 12% chance of being a starter in the league. So, and again, when I talk about this from a betting perspective, it's like being a better. You know, when I want to bet on a game, I'm laying $110 to win 100 That 100 over time is going to kill me yeah. if I'm just flipping coins. The Jets, like, everybody's like, well, what's the big deal? It's just a fifth-round pick. Well, you're trading 1.125 starters in your mind for one starter. And so you can hit that. That, that you know, people win bets all the time. Yeah. But over time, you're the square better, and they're the bookmaker. Right. And, and that's... You know how how you know teams get yeah, stuck like, trading up to. I've made the analogy before that it's it's like poker, right? The idea with poker is to get your hand in, you get your money in with the best hand every time. Doesn't mean you'll win every time. You'll you, you know you'll lose. You'll get the bad end of the percentages sometimes. But if you do it every single time, over the long haul, you will win. You will win more money than other people because you always have the better hand. That's the idea, right? It's the same thing with the betting markets. Like you just want to be on the right side of the percentages all of the time and if mm. you can do that you will win in the long haul doesn't mean you won't crap out on a, on a bet every now and again or you won't get the crappy end of the distribution every now and again yep um so the next thing i want to pivot to i will get to right after we give uh, the pff uh, dis- uh discount code if you're listening you can get 25 percent off any pff subscription by using the promo code nfl pod exclusive to this podcast so now eric eager is complicit in boosting our numbers um, what can you get with a free PF with a free PFF subscription with a PFF subscription? All of PFF's locked article content, fantasy football rankings and projections coming soon, data and grades from the entire 2021 season, the upcoming 2022 season, and all the back seasons we've done. So NFL data goes all the way back to 2006, um, college data back to 2014, and plenty more. Uh, support the pod and use the promo code NFLPOD for 25% off any sub. Uh, so we had an email in from a lifelong Jags fan. That's got to be pretty rough. It's got to be rough. Also, because being born in the late 90s, he says he missed the majority of the Jags' good years. You know, and besides the 2017 season, he's learned to live with seasonal disappointment. Um, this guy's name is Brian Stokes. Long email that I'm going to essentially paraphrase or pivot to what we want to talk about from it. He was essentially asking, you know, with this... Rams, uh, the way the Rams have been doing this whole, you know, FDM picks, the strategy they've been employing, we talked about that a lot in the podcast. Um, He was essentially asking, should bad organizations think more about doing something different with that number one overall pick, right? Why do we not see the number one overall pick traded for a sure thing player? Like, generally speaking, the number one overall pick is only going to be traded if you're getting out of that pick and trading down a few spots yeah. and doing the, you know just accumulating more draft capital. But we talked about this before with one of the things I hated, one of the things I didn't like about the Jags selecting uh, Trayvon Walker was it feels like this team has been swinging for upside for a while, right? And at some point when you're this bad, you should probably just take a, an upgrade, you know, like a clear, sure, certain upgrade. Mm-hmm. Grab Aiden Hutchinson because the chance of him being a bad player – 
are very small yeah. relative to Trayvon Walker. Trayvon Walker's chances of being a truly great player may be higher, but that's what you thought about Caleb on chase on. That's what you thought about C.J. Henderson. That's what you, you know, you've been doing this for a while and you keep missing. So why not just take a definite upgrade? Why not take it a step further and say, what, what can you get with the number one overall pick in terms of like an actual NFL player that is already good? Why, why do more teams not see the value in those picks and use them to get NFL commodities? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, let me go here to maybe explain why I think that teams don't do that. If you look at, okay, so let's say, let's say Vaughn Miller's the player you're thinking about, right? So $20 million APY currently for the Bills. Um, I'm trying to find... So Chase Young was the second overall pick in 2020, 8.6 million. Mm-hmm. So you're paying essentially like the, the 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 part about the number one pick that people that that I think has value is there is boom potential for this pick, and there is cost control because there were there were actually and I the a good way to explain this is like with the Patriots at the quarterback position last year. You had Cam Newton and you had Mac Jones who were both basically making the same amount of money. Both basically this uh, equal equal abilities in my opinion, not equal abilities but equal power ratings you'd say. Both guys are worth about the same amount. Mac Jones if Mac Jones blows up, he can't come back and ask for more money the next year. Like that, right. you, the the control on him. There's no risk. There's no upward risk in addition to the downward risk, right? Cam Newton, if he had an MVP caliber season, he's going right back to the drawing board with you and asking for the thirty million dollar contract. So it, it's almost entirely about money. It's almost entirely about that differential between Von Miller, the twelve million per year per year, and Chase Young, and it's and it's almost all entirely in the upside risk too, because. If, if if you're taking the guy at one, you want him to be a Hall of Fame type of player. But even if he's a median player, you're getting surplus value per dollar. You know, it's a Baker Mayfield thing too. Yeah. So it, it's a combination. I, I sort of I'm, I've wheeled unwieldy in this in this answer. But it's a combination of if the guy's average, he's still a value. If the guy's amazing, he's still a value, and you don't have the 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 com- com- complementary risk associated with him wanting more money if he becomes great. Right. Those two things, I think, are the reason why teams don't do that. I, the Rams are really the interesting one where... I mean, I think if you're, if you're trading for a guy with that kind of capital, you probably have to just assume that you're paying him top-of-the-market money yes. regardless, right? You're either paying him immediately. He's either on that contract already. You're paying it to him the second you trade for him, or you're paying it to him like the earliest opportunity yeah. after that point. So either way... You're expecting that that is top of the market money. To me, though, the interesting thing about like the first couple of picks, they're definitely cheaper, right? I mean, obviously we're talking it's like half the money, yeah. But they're not; they're actually quite expensive for certain positions, anyway. Like, you know what I mean? The number not- one overall pick gets to the point where it's not like it's not it, it, you're still discounting, but all, that's the what you're doing then is is trading the certainty, right, of trading for uh, whoever, like a Von Miller versus the saving um but it, the the it's different to like trading you know say multiple first round picks but neither one of them is higher than 15 like the 15th overall pick is getting paid peanuts relative to the top of the market guy the number one overall pick it's not 
Like, he's not in the same ballpark, but that difference gets a lot closer. And there's, it's true about all top 10 picks, right? So if you yeah. have one Pro Bowl, you get the transition tag as your fifth-year option. If you have two Pro Bowls, so like Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray's fifth-year option is the franchise tag dollar. So right. later on, but it's still, you still have the cost control that is so effective. Like, when Patrick Mahomes in year two was the MVP of the league, like, there's no discussion about him getting more money because yeah. that that's earmarked into the situation so i think that that's the the hard part i mean i think for a year for a year where there's a quarterback it makes sense right because this all mm-hmm. the things we always talk about the surplus value that a quarterback that hits brings is the most it's the most valuable thing in the nfl so if you don't have a star quarterback you're you should always be taking the quarterback number one overall but in a year where there isn't a quarterback i mean this year right no quarterback worth taking number one you, or even if there was you already had one um, do you think, though, that the problem is the the optics of trading out of that pick when no one wants it right. are pretty bad? So, I, I that, That's probably the handicap this year. But let's say there's a year where there's a Miles Garrett out there, right? Or whoever the sort of consensus right. non-quarterback number one pick is. But don't you think, though, that, that the – I guess unless there's a team that's super desperate, but the – the, one of the best things you can do as an NFL team is get a premium position player at half the cost. Right, but the, but the value being like, isn't it? You're you're bad for a reason, right? I, I think <laughs> part the, of the reason is probably that you suck at identifying good players. But I, I think the problem is I think we're we're just I we're we're resulting a little bit to the particular situation, which is the Jaguars are a mess. They picked not the best player. Sure, but and, I mean, and the bust the potential is is immense here. Forget the Jags, but even like. Generally, just bad teams that are consistently picking at the top of the draft. And there's a few of them over the years. Mm-hmm. You don't need to, you know, it's not a, an unusual circumstance. Isn't there a case that those guys should be more interested in a Rams-style strategy of you should be willing to pay for certainty, right? And they're kind of doing it. Like, you look at free agency. Again, I, I don't want to harp on Jacksonville all the time. But, like, Jacksonville have to pay a premium now to bring in free agents because nobody wants to go to Jacksonville. So they're already, like, overpaying, quote-unquote, to just get people in the door. So why not overpay to get a guarantee upgrade at a spot who's a veteran player rather than hoping you don't screw it up well, and picking one? Because I think that the prices are all baked in. So we see, you know, Ramsey. We see Miller. We see those players, and, and they hit, right? We ignore Jamal Adams. We ignore Frank Clark. Um, Odell Beckham Jr. Like, I think the Rams the Rams are an interesting story because they've made us reevaluate all of our assumptions about the game. But at the same time, they, they, they are just an N of one, right? Mm-hmm. If, if any one of the Rams trades flops, I don't think that they win a Super Bowl, you know? And so the, it's just like, I mean, it's the difference between laying plus 100 and you know, minus 500 and like, it's just the cost, right? It's, you know, if Miller doesn't work out or, or, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the uh, Ramsey doesn't work out or uh, so on and so forth. uh, Stafford doesn't work out. Like the whole thing blows up. The the Rams just happened to hit on all the players that they traded for. And then they have the secondary benefits. So this is where I'll give them credit. When you don't pick high in the draft, your guys don't come up for big contracts all that much. So they they have an added cap benefit of never like Miles Garrett never getting to 
the place where they have to give him the highest contract. You know, the, the, it's the it's the winner's curse of hitting on draft picks in some ways. So they don't have that, and that that may be baked into your argument, which is okay. I'll pay up for this player. The the one of the benefits is that when that player you know reaches the end of the deal, I just don't think that many front offices think that far ahead, nor right. should they, because for the most part, all but what six front offices don't have a leash that long. I mean, I think the other element at play is if you're bad enough, that guy isn't making any difference anyway. Like mm-hmm. if you transplanted Aaron Donald right and put him on the Jags right now, mm-hmm. what difference does he make? I mean, obviously he makes an impact on the defensive line. He did. Their their defense is scarier with him yeah. there than without him. But what is he doing to the Jacksonville chances of winning a Super Bowl next year or next year? Well, that that's the problem with probably football, not though. much. That's the problem with football, right? There's only one position where you insert player A onto this team and it changes their straights dramatically. Right. The I think what the Rams have shown us is if over time you've 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 got a bunch of houses money, right? That was really the issue was that. You know, you looked at that roster. The Rams were second, I think, last year in wins above replacement by non-quarterbacks. It was just golf was holding them back a little bit. And so then they struck on a Matthew Stafford. You can't build it, I think. You can't build a team around Matthew Stafford. I mean, Detroit proved that for a decade. You can insert a Matthew Stafford onto an yeah. amazing team and win a Super Bowl. I think that's clear. I, I think there's only probably, what, four or five quarterbacks that you can build around like take a bad team and erect a team around this player yeah. and he ends up being good enough to win a Super Bowl with. Every other player is sort of in the same straight as Stafford where you sort of see a team accumulate assets and then there's the the gap at quarterback and then maybe push everything into the future to try to win now. They did it, so we'll have to reevaluate that situation. But I think most teams aren't in that position, right? Like the Jaguars aren't in that position. The the Vikings aren't in that position. The, the Bears aren't in that position. So they're better off sort of like doing it the traditional way, which is to draft a quarterback high, hope that you use the bounty that you get from not paying them that much money to hit on 21 other bets. Yeah. You know? and, that, and that's you know that's a tough thing to do. I mean, I think the other theory with the Rams strategy is – I don't know that you would be able to do that starting from a lower ebb like i think you would need to have a you'd need to have a baseline of at least an average team to even attempt what the rams have done right. in terms of strategy like i think this, it's even bigger right you well, have to be a yeah. lot better I like think. this studs and duds or studs what's the term you use for them? stars and stars scrubs. that's it stars and scrubs the stars and scrubs strategy that they've had doesn't work if you're starting from where the jags are like it's just not gonna the, the stars aren't gonna make enough of an impact for the rest of the roster to keep their heads above water the rest of the roster needs to be at a level that's okay to begin with. Then you add the stars to it, and now you can start to tinker with the balance there. Um, so I guess that's the overall answer to that question is when you stink, the value of a guy being on a cheap contract is actually worth more than the impact even an Aaron Donald can make. Because you're, you're just so, you're so much further away from, yeah. from being good, and the more of those sort of building blocks you can put together – and at cost-effective numbers, I think is a is a big bounty. But I do think that I do think there was still mileage in a team like Jacksonville, who has been swinging for potential for a long time mm-hmm. to just take a, a sure upgrade on a cost-controlled deal like at Aiden Hutchinson. Um, so, how would looking back at the draft now, how would the analytics kind of community? You're the spokesman now for the analytics mm-hmm. community. That's how it's going to work. How would the quote-unquote analytics community draft differently to the way the NFL is doing right now? I think the NFL is doing a, 
an increasingly better job. I mean, we you look in the round one, you know, like safety is a position that I've always thought was more valuable, but the marketplace doesn't believe so. Right. And so my opinion actually doesn't matter there in that, you know, Jason Fitzgerald did a great job of showing this. It's like the the premiumness of a position is the fraction of players in the top 20 who are accessible through free agency. It's the one minus that, right? Okay. So quarterbacks, I mean, they're except for rare circumstances, quarterback, elite quarterback play are not uh, accessible through free agency. Uh, running backs are accessible. Like Sony Michelle just signed with the Dolphins yesterday, and he was an 800-yard back, right? Um, wide receivers not accessible through free agency for the most, but not elite ones. Uh, tight ends are. Uh, tackles are not accessible through free agency. Guards and centers are. Safeties are. Corners kind of corners are an interesting one linebackers are accessible through free agency defensive ends aren't elite caliber ones um so i think the nfl is catching on to that like we're seeing you know uh guards i mean the guard but the guards went a little bit high zion johnson Mm. um as well as uh chris's favorite guy um kenyon green kenyon green you saw three safeties in round one which is kind of interesting you didn't see any running backs but a running back went at 30 and a running back went at 41 like my opinion, I, I I think it's I think things are getting more rational, but you know you're still seeing teams trade up, and I we we look at Quasi Adafo Mensa from Minnesota. Like I think he was showing people are mad. I think because he went against the grain, where he lost trades via the Jimmy Johnson chart and won trades via the Spielberger, right. Fitzgerald, and PFF charts. People are like, well, wait a sec, no, no, no. It's like, well. The, the teams that are going to gain an edge are going to be the teams that sort of go countercultural there. So to me, if I was looking at the draft, I'm like, okay, where, where are some things I can exploit? It's like we're still seeing a lot of reaches and we're still seeing a lot of trade-ups. Positional value is getting a lot more rational, but we're still seeing a lot of guards and stuff taken in round one uh, and, and a little bit high safeties as well. But it, it's getting better. It's, it's moving in a positive direction, I would say. Do you think that Quasi has been mislabeled a little bit as so you know he's he's seen as this analytics gm right mm-hmm. um but the guy has like an economics background right he's a mm-hmm. he's a banker like he's not he didn't come necessarily like his, his origins weren't from the analytics world they were from a finance world and they operate financial people operate slightly differently and the things that he's been doing as a, as vikings gm like the, one of the frustrations is i've i've gone on rants before is like what it's the same what has changed this is if you kind of wrote down the totality of what's happened since he came in you would be like this is this is a rick spielman playbook we're running right now this is the same nothing has changed um but it's also the kind of playbook that you would run if you're from an economics world where you're like let's push a little bit of every lever let's diversify the portfolio let's not put too many eggs in one basket like this is how economics people work yeah, and and that's like I think a misnomer about what the Vikings brass was before Questy. Like from 2015, I think until 2021, the Vikings had drafted the most players in the NFL. They had the most trades. Yeah, right. Spielman was doing this kind of stuff, and people gave him crap because he would move back into round seven. He would he wasn't trading right, which in reality he was at, like if you're trading back in the draft, you're you're generally speaking getting value, and I think that that's what Questy you know showed, which was. You know, a lot of people thought that the trade back with Detroit was a bad trade, but mathematically it was a fine trade. It was just the optics were bad because every team around that pick got much more of a ransom for their pick. And so, yeah, the thing about the Vikings for me is is not necessarily that 
Questy's doing a bad job. It's that I think expectations were he was going to come in and change everything. But you yeah. come in in, J- in January, they weren't even expecting to fire uh, Spielman, right? They were expected to fire Zimmer and not Spielman. They fire Spielman out of, kind of out of the blue. They hire him. Well, you're working with his scouts. You're working with their big boards. You're working. I know they hired Ryan Grigson, of all people, to help him, which that's a questionable move as well. And then you have ownership's affinity for Kirk Cousins. So you had so many constraints yeah. that my question was, you know, how could Quasi's playing poker with other people's cards? And so he could probably play a little bit more optimally, but there's still other people's cards. So that, that was kind of the frustration with this year. And I think the league also, um, you know, just from what I can hear around is like when Quasi calls you, everybody's like, okay, let's write this down because this is coming from a different point of view than most GMs. So I think he's also sort of countercultural in the way in which he was approaching the draft and people took, took heed from it. And he was never going to get the best value because people are sort of skeptical when he calls them. Oh, this is a, this is an econ guy, right? right. From Princeton. What, what is he going to, what is he going to do here? What, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the first guy to get fleeced. by yeah. like If he's giving you an offer, you're immediately like, this is the thing I've said where like if Bill Belichick, calls you up looking to give you a player yeah like he's, no he's watched it, immediately yeah. no yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm not interested yeah um it, it my only point with the crazy thing generally has been like if you're like, why why fire everybody else if you're not going to change things like because surely ne- like if ever there's a point of like reset you know the, the vikings have been stuck in this rut of the same the same thing for a lot of years now you like if surely at that point Okay, head coach gone, GM gone. The the determination has been made that this this rut we're in is not where we want to remain. So what's the point in firing everybody and then bringing in more people that are going to do the well, same thing? Well, especially if the the whole like thesis is that the coaching staff was really bad last year and they need a new voice. And then if that were actually true, then you wouldn't need to draft players who play the positions of the players you just drafted <laughs> because, in theory, if the coaches were better, they'd be able to coach up the guys that Mike Zimmer wasn't getting anything out of. And you also wouldn't need to fire the GM. Like, right. You know, Spielman could still be there if that yeah. was the case. I mean, I think that there were – so there were a few issues with Spielman. I think, like, if you look at you know, people that cover the team, it's like he wasn't accountable, which Kwesi has been to his credit, has done a lot of press conferences, been accountable – um, you know, same thing with Zimmer. And there was there were obvious tensions there. But I think we have to face facts about the Vikings, which is just that the ownership just wants the team to be okay all the time. I, you know, they've only – they've been bad the last two years, but they've only played two meaningless games, you know, week 18 and week 17 of the two years. And, you know, if that's your – if that's your – if that's your goal is to have a team that's sort of always competitive and they look in the Kirk Cousins era, the Vikings have never been more than a seven point underdog in a regular season game. Right. So you're always competitive. Steve, um, Steve is actually having Rick Spielman on the podcast and one of the shows yeah. that I'm not here in, in a couple of weeks time. I, I, nothing I wanted to ask more than essentially that question. Like how much does ownership in Minnesota actually want to win or how much are they just content with, just don't be bad. Well, and you and I follow the team very closely. And you and so, like, one of the biggest things was, you know, their first year, they fired Mike Tice, like, the, the moment after his first game in a very embarrassing way. Yeah. They get Childress in the fold. They go all in. They get Favre, right? And they go – they get, you know, uh, um, an inch away, basically, from the Super Bowl in t- 2009. They give Childress a five-year extension. 2010 happens and it's a mess. Favre camp, Favre lost his fastball. They trade for Randy Moss. Randy Moss is malcontent. Mm-hmm. All that stuff happens and they fire Childress. What 
seven games, ten games into a five-year extension. <laughs> I think I think if you look at like the history and you look at the Wills, you look and you say, okay, what can? And then the year next year, 2011 with Frazier, they went three and 13. That's really the last year and the only year this century that they've been bad. If you're the Wills, like I think it's somewhat rational to be like, look, we went all in and tried to actually win a Super Bowl once, and it failed badly, badly. for us. And there was a 2011 season where Gates were bad and 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 interest in the team was bad. If we just get this thing on the green yeah. every single year, I mean, we know like Vikings fans are rabid and they and they care, and some of them are actually okay with beating the Packers once a year but never making the playoffs. So this is the thing: like, how many owners do you think in the NFL? Because to me, there's so many. Um, there's so many edges that exist. So the NFL constrains competition in a lot of different ways, right? Between the draft, free agency, the salary cap. There's a lot of things you cannot do to just buy success the way you can in soccer, right? Like oil states are buying up Paris Saint-Germain and, mm-hmm. you know, Saudi Arabia buys Newcastle. and the, Newcastle and United are... They became the world's most spend-happy club in January, right? Immediately, right off the bat. You can just essentially buy success. Man City is on a giant run of winning the Premier League because they're backed by an oil state. Yeah. Um, Chelsea. Chelsea are getting sold, but Abramovich started that, right? Russian oligarch comes in and buys success. Um, you can't do that in the NFL because there's a salary cap. You can't just go out there and buy Patrick Mahomes from the Chiefs, plug him in as your starting quarterback, and all the other things you want to do. Um, but you can do a lot outside of those constraints – I think, to make yourself, to give you a huge edge, right? Like, there's no reason if you're an owner that wants to win the Super Bowl more than anything else, you wouldn't have the best training facilities in the league. You wouldn't have the largest scouting department in in the league, the biggest coaching staff in the league. Like, all these things that there are no limits on in terms of spending, you should be spending the most, right, if you rationally want to win. But people aren't, and there's not like an exploding market in this this area. And even the teams that we would consider smart, like, I mean, they're cutting – they're pinching pennies over you anything, know, anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and but you're right. The so problem, how many of these? How many of these owners do you think really want to win? And how many do you think are in this for the tax breaks? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I mean, we live in Cincinnati, right? Like the the one that the one that gets. So the hard part is is baseball. You play 162 games. The wheat and the chaff get separated pretty easily. Basketball is the same. Basketball is a game where you play hundreds of possessions and the thing gets pretty the thing gets pretty fair really quick football i mean shit the bengals just made the super bowl and and you get playoff series where you've got to do it four times whereas the bengals i mean the bengals almost got beat by the raiders here and then go and win against titans chiefs and almost beat the rams and every and and we forget now I mean, Carson Palmer was sort of sour grapes at the Super Bowl when we were there. And he's like, no, oh, this team's never going to support, you know, Joe Burrow. And everybody's like, oh, and it's like, have you looked at the history of this franchise? He's kind of right. And and yet, but football's so noisy, right? It was it was why it was so important for the Eagles to win the Super Bowl when they got there, doing the fourth down stuff, doing the, you know, calling us out and saying, hey, we love PFF's data. Like all when the Giants won in 2011, yeah. being our first client, that was a really important time. Because football is a noisy game, right? The Rams, like I'm, I'm perpetrator number one. Like I didn't think the Rams all in thing was going to work. It didn't make a lot of it, it, it. To me, it was not the sound way to do it. And they win the Super Bowl. And guys like me have to eat a little bit of crow. We have to learn a little bit about the game. And then we have to know when to say, yeah, they won, but 
I wouldn't do it again. Have you, you know? completely changed your mind on that, or are you still kind of of the opinion of, I mean, they just call it variance? I mean, they were a four seed who beat a six seed in the NFC title game and then a four seed in the Super Bowl. So part of me is saying, look, they got a little lucky. But I also will change my tone to the point where like, you can see where they sort of found crevices that other teams and, – and look, they're being followed. So there, there is some signal to what they're doing. Now, as a Kansas City Chiefs fan, I'm really happy that the Chiefs said, oh, there's a bunch of teams that are going all in. Let's trade our best. Pl- let's trade our, be- our second best player. Get twelve picks and build for the future, a la what the Patriots did for so many years. And because there's not a ton, because my 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 charge, and this is where I was wrong about the Rams, just in the 2021 sphere, there was actually a ton of value. Um, there's a ton of value in when in being one of the better teams last year because the league didn't have good teams. I, I was on, I did the Kansas City Chiefs uh, pregame show for the AFC title game, and I said point blank, I said this Chiefs team's favored to make the Super Bowl, and they're not even that good. They're, they're so the Rams looking at the league and saying there's not a lot of great teams right now, and going all in was smart on their part. This year now, Bills are good, Bucks are good, Packers are good, uh, Rams are good, uh, Chargers are good. Um, you know, let's say Browns, Bengals, Ravens, you know, Denver Broncos. It's insane this year. If you're pushing your chips to go all in this year and you're, 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 you know, killing your future to do it, I think you're dumb, right? Because your chances of, of making the Super Bowl, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's a gauntlet this year. The team that, this is going to be another year for exactly a different reason where like a four seed wins the Super Bowl because it's just everybody's beating each other up. Last year, a four seed won the Super Bowl because the one, two, and three seeds weren't very good. To me, the the kind of, not the smartest thing, but like the, one of the aspects. So when they traded for Matthew Stafford, it was like, I mean, how, how much better do they think Stafford actually is? Because Stafford's baseline it's good, but it's not amazing. Yeah. Like it's not. He hasn't really shown that he's the guy. Like he's not a Patrick Mahomes. He's not a Aaron Rodgers. He's not in that category. And there were people that said he was right all the way along. There were people that said, "Yeah, no, Matthew Stafford is like he's he's a superstar level quarterback. You put a superstar team around him, yeah. and that's the Matthew Stafford you're going to get." And even that didn't really pan out. If you like he had a PFF grade of 82, he was like the 14th ranked quarterback 13th ranked quarterback during the regular season but then you started to get Matthew Stafford um like you started to get an improved version during the playoffs and his playoff grade jumped significantly and you got a much better Matthew Stafford and even in the playoffs like you still had like one throw a game where he tried to pitch it to the defense yeah he led the league in interceptions right with the point being like they, they didn't need Stafford to be Mahomes all the time they just needed him to turn into Mahomes once you reach the important games and go on that run, and that's exactly what he did. Now, whether he's able to turn that on consistently for like, okay, now it's important time, play well, that's up for debate. But simply having that capacity, I think, is the important thing. Like, whatever Jared Goff was capable of doing, he's probably never going to do that, right? You were never going to get Jared Goff just turn it on and look like Tom Brady for a four and even then he stretch. won us i mean he went on the road and beat the saints in the playoffs after right. a 10 point deficit the, but like what that does like the quarterback being able to turn into like a top five qb in the nfl for five games regardless of like when they are that that's the value but don't you think i mean that is really just the difference between like right now we're so uh spoiled right 
when we started doing grading in 2006, there was one consistently amazing quarterback in the league, and that was Peyton Manning, right? Even Brady needed – Brady was sort of propped up a little bit. He needed stretches. Now there's, what, five or six quarterbacks who are unquestionably – like you get, one ha- you get one amazing half a game out of those quarterbacks no matter what, right. every single game. And we lose the fact that, you know, back in the day, you know, Cam Newton was, Cam Newton was like this too. Some quarterbacks are capable of the stre- – Eli Manning. Some of these quarterbacks are capable of putting together a month where they're just absolutely out of their mind and they, you can win with them. And, 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 but their floor is low. Yeah, And I think we're so spoiled by the quarterbacks who are just consistently great. Herbert, Mahomes, uh, Burrow even is that way now. Uh, Brady, obviously. Uh, Rodgers, et cetera, et cetera. That we look at a guy like Stafford it's like, well, he's not consistently great enough. Well, the Rams saw that and said, well, we don't really need him to be because the rest of our team is great. Yeah. And if, he, if we can catch a string of four games where he's – pretty damn good we'll win the super bowl and they and they did and they identified to to my point of trying to give them credit they identified the year where that was the most advantageous way of doing it if you were in the like i I think about the chiefs when they won the super bowl in 2019 and when they went all in in 2020 to try to win again you didn't know josh allen was good you didn't know burrow and herbert were good brady left the conference uh et cetera you know philip rivers went to indianapolis instead of playing in your division et cetera et cetera there was a ton of value in getting that number one pole position and just being like we're gonna win this year when like what was the marginal value for the rams in do in getting maybe like 10 percent better than stafford it wasn't that high because you know the the whole league was kind of like a, a a wash of variance last year that they were able to take advantage of it it feels like there should be more teams now that are kind of that's what you should be targeting, right? Because obviously the dream is you get the next Mahomes or you get the next Herbert or whoever it is. Like, but you're not, you're not going to find that guy, right? The chances are nobody is. Um, so what the next best thing is to get a quarterback that's pretty good but is capable of turning into those guys for five games, right? Because even like, the hell, Joe Flacco did that. Joe Flacco was not a particularly good quarterback and then randomly had a, the best five-game stretch of his career – got a ring and a hundred million dollar contract out of it like set up for life based off five games uh, Eli Manning you brought up again like Eli Manning you take away the two Super Bowl runs what is he it's not yeah, his great. whole 2011 year he was stupid agreed yeah, yeah but but for the most part you take away the the two Super Bowl I mean he never won another playoff game in another season right like that's but even like Newton you think about Newton on the play for play take level, away 2015 like pl- what is he yeah, on the play-for-play play level, he's a high yards per attempt but low completion percentage guy. That doesn't fly in the NFL. It flew back in the day, right, where Chris Chandler could take a team to the Super Bowl, Jake DeLome, uh, you know, uh, guys like that. I mean, it was it was a, a quite a bit of a, a of a different league now. But yeah, I mean, I think there's there's always going to be edges in there's always going to be edges in sort of um, in looking at the league a little bit differently i think the problem is most of the time you're wrong and the rams in this particular case were right and and i think that that's um you know a a a very important thing to realize is that you know looking at the league differently nine out of ten times you're gonna fail how how sustainable do you think their approach is because one of the criticisms or or the the way it was characterized initially is that you know the fdm pick it's going all in for this year and okay, even if they even if they win, they won the Super Bowl. Therefore, they were right. It's still going to be the wrong. It's the wrong like long term approach because it has a shelf life. How how long do you think this can work for them? I uh, 
I mean, because all those guys they traded for are still there. Like they're not. Well, Vaughn Miller left, so you, sure. you gave but, up but a, the, the, a second and a third for the stars and like the stars of the stars mm-hmm. and scrubs approach. Are no, still there. and and the to the point of you know looking at let's actually look at their that at their structure here because I again if you go this long and by the way the Washington football team or command they'll always be the football team to me. Um, you know, went like a decade without a first round pick back in like the sixties yeah. and seventies, but when you look at the the Rams salary structure. You know, you have Donald at 27, you have Ramsey at 23, you have Cup at 18, and you have Stafford at 13 and a half. No one else is above 10. And you only have, carry the two, seven players with a, with a salary cap hit of over five. You know, well, it, they're not, there's not a ticking time bomb for right. their next first round pick. You know, they, think about Minnesota. We talk about them just because they're top of the mind. Justin Jefferson that's a $30 million player next year, right? Yeah, so so you, you have to think about how to keep your quarterback happy and your wide receiver happy. And, you know, Tyree Kill, that was always the ticking time bomb for the Chiefs. And this, is, this is where it feels like Dallas always come unstuck. It doesn't feel like Dallas anticipates those contracts correct. coming until they come. And it's like, oh, crap, we got this deal due? Like, yeah. oh, now we got to cut people. See yeah. ya, Amari Cooper, get out of here. Yeah, well, and that was, and then there's always like sort of the thinking. When you think this way, you can also be countercultural in how you approach the trades. So, like the Von Miller. So I, I always think about the Stephon Gilmore trade and the Von Miller trade. The the Panthers only had to give up a sixth for Stephon Gilmore because they had enough cap space to take on his old you know, his whole his whole deal. The Rams didn't have any cap space, but they do, but they don't value picks. Right. So they just say, okay, second and third for Miller, you take all of his money. And essentially, what they're doing is trading a second and third round pick for a chance to win a Super Bowl. You know, is that is that too high of a price? In hindsight, of course not. But at the time, it felt steep. You know, yeah. so. There's also always like the it's it's always there's always more layers to it, right? Like they also know that he's probably going to walk and they'll get a comp pick yep. back for it. So it's not it's not the totality. And they do the, a great job with the comp picks. Yeah. And they and they and and this is where I'll, I'll I'll back up the people who say it might end up being bad for them. You remember the Green Bay Packers and when they when they when when early in Rodgers era, in tenure where it's you know oh my gosh James Jones is a fourth round pick and oh my gosh uh, you know uh, Sam Shields is an undrafted player and like they had all these players come up and contribute who weren't highly highly sought after players right. and everybody's like Ted Thompson's just really good at this stuff this is why the Packers will compete forever and of course. What happens is, you know, the, the guy who's up big at the craps table ends up, you know, losing a decent amount of money because he plays too long. That was the Seahawks as well. And right? that was the like Seahawks, you draft, right? You draft essentially the Legion of Boom defense, and it's like, oh, the Seahawks are just like, they're they, just better. And, and in fact, it was worse for them because they got overconfident in right. their abilities to scout players, and they were one of the great perpetrators of, of, of going too high on players. So the rams and i think jordan rodriguez for the athletic does a good job of covering it. they showed sort of like what their approach is to drafting a lot of players later on now the question is is how sustainable is that I, josh hermsmeyer for 538 wrote an article that said they really don't do that much better it is really just hinged on they get a little bit better than replacement level players for those positions and then their stars are stars mm. so to me when the rams are going to fail when they make one of the when they overextend themselves for a player it doesn't when they when they yeah. do a Frank Clark trade right. right because the Chiefs did a Frank Clark trade and they still won a Super Bowl because their quarterback's amazing 
the Ram- Stafford's not good enough, in my opinion, to overcome a Frank Clark trade. Yeah. That, I think, is where the boundary is. The value in what they're doing is not that they're dramatically better at drafting than other people with the backfield picks that they have. It's that the certainty that they're paying for with the, prof- right. with the already established NFL players has, been, has worked. Yeah. And they value that more than drafting those guys and hoping they become good. But as soon as they miss... Because that isn't a hundred percent thing yeah. either. That's nobody bats a thousand on those trades. As soon as they miss on one of those, the whole thing unspools. Right, and and, and again, th- you can say that that won't happen. But we have Jamal Adams. We have, I mean, the Jamal Adams trade. And granted, he's a safety, and Ramsey's a corner, so Ramsey's a little bit more valuable. But like when you give up two first round picks for a non quarterback, like it's going to be hard. And Ramsey just is an amazing football player that's overcome. You know, he's basically played up to the level of that trade, which is a remarkable feat. Right. Um, same thing for, you know, you think about uh, Khalil Mack, like where the Bears are in their process. Like Khalil Mack was an absolute hit. And and still, like, he just played up to the value of the trade. You know, because, again, you're paying – you get certainty there, but you're paying for it. Oh, yeah. And and, and the problem you, is you're paying for certainty, and it's not it's not certain. Like, it's yeah, more it's certain, certain than the draft pick that you are yeah. that you would have been but taking. But it's, it's costly. Yeah, and it, but it's not 100%. Like, you're going to miss one of them eventually. It's not, it's not a sure thing. We've all seen, quote-unquote, sure things in yeah. the NFL go somewhere else, and it just didn't work. And look, and, okay, if you're a Rams fan and you – you, especially a Los Angeles Rams fan, you have not seen a Super Bowl win, right? You had the St. Louis Rams win it in 99. Was it all worth it? Yeah. Right? Sure. Like, and that's the thing. Like, we come back to it's, you know, this is a, this is a league where if you don't have a great quarterback, like a, like a top-end guy, the league, gives you, the league gives you one very, very, very clear way of competing. It's which all is, about perspectives and, like, what's your actual goal, right? Like, yeah. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fans, obviously – but there's probably a lot of teams as well that, like, if you could just put one trophy in the cabinet, yep. like, if you could just give one Lombardi trophy over there, it's all I want. I just don't want to be the guy that has none in the trophy yes. cabinet. I just want one of them. Put yeah, that like, Les Snead and, and, and McVeigh, like, you know, it's it, Les Snead and McVeigh are forever, it's immortality, right? right? They're, they're, yeah. You never can question them now, even though, in theory, they might have made a gamble that right. was. And there's definitely Asymmetric. there's definitely teams out there that would be like, I don't care what you need to do. Just yeah. put one of those over in the cabinet and I'm good. Right? I don't care if we suck for the next twenty years, just make that happen. But then there are franchises and there are teams and there are fan bases. You get greedy and you get it becomes very quickly you transition from, oh, if we could just win one Super Bowl, I would die a happy man, to I mean, why can't we win every year? You know, why, why yeah. can't we compete every single year and rack up what the Patriots did and become a dynasty yeah. and go down and, you know, history is the greatest thing that this league has ever seen. And it's amazing how quickly you transition from one to the other. Like if we could just not suck this year, that'd be great. Right. Yeah. And then as soon as you have that one douse of success, it's like, well, there's really no reason that we shouldn't be winning this every single year. Like, why, you know, just back it up. Like, I, that happened with rugby very quickly for me. Right. Ireland went from like bottom dwellers in the yeah. six, like routinely third or fourth, you know, of a six-team competition, to all of a sudden we're like the best team there and we're beating New Zealand for the first time in 108 years. And then you're like, why can't we beat New Zealand every time? Why can't we be the best team in the world? That's very quick. That's, I think, why – and I wonder how Rams fans are. I mean, think about this, though, for a second. Like, the L.A. market is is a very, like, distracted market. You know, if you don't grab the the attention – 
especially year two of a stadium, year one of having be, being able to have people in that stadium, year one, you know, Super Bowl year in that stadium. You know, like, again, I was very hard on the Rams' decision-making process. A lot of it, you know, in hindsight makes sense, even if, you know, this thing will come toppling down if they miss on some players. Um, you know, Donald retires, Ramsey starts to struggle uh, you know, Stafford turns, you know, starts to struggle uh, incrementally. Things get worse for him. Whitworth retired, right? There, there are things that, but look, flags fly forever. That, that, that one trophy you can, you can't take from him. But I, I agree with you. Like if they, let's say they struggle next year and everybody's gonna be like, well, what the hell happened? It's like, well, no, like that's part of the price of this trophy right. you just got, right? Like, you know, um, and, and you know, and, and people, people don't necessarily stick to the plan that way. All right, that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, Monday, we've got Austin Gale coming on. We're going to repeat a show that we did last year that people love, the fatal flaw for all 32 NFL teams. This time, it's not going to be a quarterback for half the league like it was last time. That was a lot of the feedback is, love this show. It felt like we were hearing about the quarterback for half the league. So we're we're going to have a non-quarterback fatal flaw for every team in the NFL. Doctor, a pleasure, as always. It's always fun hanging out with you and talking football, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sitting in the uh, the Steve chair, the big creaky one that's it's felt some things. That chair, it's not it's not in great shape anymore. Um, this has been fun though. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, it was fun. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Uh, I'll see you on Monday. The doctor won't. It'll be Austin Gay on the chair. So uh, till then, bye bye.